You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World this week Broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite Listen to the Anarchist World this week Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse Listen to analysis of local, national and international events to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. <laughs> Welcome to the Anarchist World this week. Yes, it's bright and breezy. Just in case you haven't realised, it's summer. Now, obviously, the Anarchist World this week is broadcast via the Community Radio Network across Australia. So I don't know who's listening and where you're listening. It's also streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Now, if the program is also podcast, so if nature calls and you've got to evacuate your bladder or bowels, or somebody next door kind of needs help, you know, they need resuscitation, don't despair. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. There are hundreds of podcasts in case you're bored over the festive season. So, my name is Joseph Oscar. I'm hosting today's program, Anarchism, Anarchos, Without Rulers. It's, it's a society without rulers. What gives rulers the ability to determine the fate of billions of people? Simple inequalities in power and wealth. How do you create an anarchist society? By sharing power and holding wealth in common. Simple concepts. You break the building blocks of hierarchy. You begin to create the building blocks for a society based on direct democratic principles, delegation and uh, holding wealth in common, diametrically opposed to the type of society we have today. So that's what I'd like to make clear. My name is Joseph Toscana. I'm hosting today's program now. We've got some esoteric topics today and we've got some fascinating topics today. Now, obviously, what you think is fascinating, what I think is fascinating are two different things. But I'm going to start off with an article I uh, wrote a few days ago regarding the Eureka flag. I know you're going to be all Eureka'd out because Eureka Day is on the 3rd of December and you keep wondering why bother, why bother celebrating that event. Now, you can access this article by going to the Anarchist Media Institute uh, website, anarchistage at yahoo.com. Now, the Eureka flag, it's actually, well, I've actually titled the article The Eureka Flag's Strange Bedfellows. You like that? It's like waking up in the middle of the night and the dog's in the bed and you didn't realise they were in the bed when you started off. I'm not talking about your partner, I'm talking about the dog. All right? The Eureka Flag was first flown at Bakery Hill in Ballarat on the 11th of November, 1854. At the monster meeting, which was attended by about half Ballarat's population between around 15,000 people, which had been called by the Ballarat Reform League. The, the League, 
the Ballarat Reform League had been formed on the 11th of November 1854 as a consequence of the conflict between the British colonial authorities in Victoria and miners who had poured into Ballarat from all corners of the, of the world, of the globe, to find their fortune. Yep. Refugees from the failed 1848 revolutionary wave that swept across Europe, disillusioned chartists from uh, England, freed slaves from North America, failed miners from the 1849 Californian gold rushes, fortune hunters from all sectors of the British Empire poured into uh, Victoria to share, to share in the wealth, a little bit like a 19th century Tats Lotto. Many try, few win. Within a few months, a massive tent city had sprung up almost overnight on the traditional lands of the Wadawarang and the Daja Daja Warang. The original inhabitants who had lived there for tens of thousands of years. On that day, the 11th of November 1854, as I said before, over half Ballarat's population turned up to this monster meeting to to debate the contents of a four-page handwritten manifesto of democratic principles and demands that had been drawn up by the Ballarat Reform League. And the demands can be summarised in five points. Full and fair representation. Now, don't get offended by the next one. Manhood suffrage. No property qualifications for members of the Legislative Council, which had been dominated by the squatocracy, 700 squatters who owned every inch of the land which had been stolen from Victoria's original inhabitants. Payment of parliamentary members and a short duration of parliament. So living in a tent city, and I don't know many of you have been camping, especially in a tent city, poses many challenges. One of the most important challenges is finding your way about. And businesses within the minus tent city Ballarat solve that problem by creating banners which flew over their tents indicating the services they provided. If you needed bread... He looked for a banner that had brown on it, denoted a bakery. If you needed medical services, you look for a banner where you get medical attention. The Ballarat Reform League understood the importance of having a flag that symbolised their principles and demands as a practical way of letting their supporters know where the meetings would be held. Southern Cross was chosen as a symbol of a new beginning, and this is the important thing, three of the class divisions, inequalities and oppression that had been imported into into Australia from the old world. Now, let's not forget that most of the people that were the engine room of the rebellion at Eureka would be considered to be political refugees today. Survivors of failed revolutions in Europe, 
the Chartist movement, Irish rebels, and the list goes on and on. See, the Southern Cross, a lot of people assume it's some type of religious, uh, you know, symbol. But the Southern Cross was chosen as a symbol by the Barrett Reform League of a new beginning for a very good reason. Over 90% of the people who were on the Ballarat goldfields had been born overseas. Before settling to their tents at night, three of 21st century distractions, social media, Twitter, television, free-to-air, goes on and on, they looked at the stars. Have any of you been camping recently? Well, what do you do? When you're three of 21st century distractions, when you turn off your mobile phone, you look at the stars. The Southern Cross does not appear in the Northern Hemisphere. It only appears in the Southern Hemisphere. Homesick, frightened, angry, hungry. The Southern Cross denoted a fresh start in a new land three of the oppression of the old lands and the old way of life. On that fateful day on the 11th of November, 1854, the, the Monster Meeting endorsed the Ballarat Reform League demands. Delegates were chosen to go to Melbourne to negotiate with the colonial authorities. When the stockade was overrun on the 3rd of December, Sunday the 3rd of December, 1854, by British troops and Victorian police, the Eureka flag was ripped off the flagpole and the victors danced on the flag as it lay in the dust. The Eureka flag was used as evidence in the Supreme Court in Victoria in the trial against the 13 rebels who had been arrested and accused of high treason, who faced hanging, drawing and quartering if they were found guilty. Now, when these treason trials failed in 1855 and all 13 defendants were acquitted over a six-month period by juries of their peers, the Eureka flag was given by the Victorian Supreme Court to John King, one of the soldiers who tore down the flag as a reward for his actions. The Eureka flag disappeared from sight and a copy was seen during the 18... A copy was seen... Well, put it this way, it disappeared from sight until a copy was seen during the 1891 Shearer strike in Melbourne. Over 600 Shearers, many on horseback marched through Barcaldine in Queensland to celebrate the first May Day publicly celebrated in Australia on the 1st of May, 1891. The original Eureka flag was occasionally displayed at Victorian Methodist Church fates by the King family to raise money for the church. The Eureka flag had become a cause of consternation for all and shame for most Victorians and Australians, it was the flag of rebellion. When the King family attempted to gift the Eureka flag to the State Library 
of Victoria in the 1890s, they were rebuffed. Could you imagine the most, one of the most important symbols of post-colonialisation struggles was rebuffed? Yep. It ended up in a drawer in the Ballarat Fine Art Gallery, now known as the Art Gallery of Ballarat, until it was rediscovered by the Eureka Youth League in the 1930s, a branch of the Australian Communist Party, in the gallery in the 1930s. Previous custodians of the flag had cut out pieces of the Eureka flag, some pieces still occasionally turn up in some auction room somewhere. And they gave these little pieces to what they considered to be important gallery visitors until the flag was rediscovered in the 1960s. The restored Eureka flag now rests in the Ballarat City Council-run Eureka Centre in Ballarat. Now, unfortunately, unless you're a Ballarat citizen or unless you turn up at the Eureka Centre on the 3rd of December, you have to pay a fee to get into the Eureka Centre. But if you turn up on Friday the 3rd of December, Eureka Day, or a resident of Ballarat, you can go in for free. And I encourage people to go and have a look at the original flag. It's displayed in a very um, respectful way. Now, the Eureka flag was adopted by the Builders' Labourers' Federation in Victoria in the 1970s. The Builders' Labourers' Federation, the Victorian branch of the Builders' Labourers' Federation, slapped a green-black ban on the redevelopment of the Bakery Hill site where the monster meetings were held and where the Eureka flag was first flown on the 11th of November 1854 as McDonald's wanted to build a restaurant on this exceptionally important piece of real estate. The deregistered Builders' Labourers' Federation, it was deregistered, let's not forget, by the Kane Labour government, morphed into the Construction, Energy, Mining, Maritime and Energy Unions. And despite numerous attempts by successive coalition governments to stop the union from flying the flag on building sites, the CFMEU continues to use the Eureka flag as a symbol of resistance and continues to fly it on building sites around Australia. Now, the Ballarat City Council, to its shame, continues to have a love-hate relationship with the Eureka flag. Although the council uses the Eureka flag as their symbol, they have never flown the Eureka flag, not even during the 150th anniversary celebrations in 2004 on the main flagpole in Ballarat. Don't ring me to tell me you've seen the Eureka flag on the Ballarat Town Hall. There is a main flagpole, which is the Australian flag, then there are two little flags, one the um, Aboriginal flag and the other one the Eureka flag. But never, never in the history of Ballarat has the Eureka flag been flown on the main flagpole, although flags from other countries have been flown on the main flagpole. So obviously the city of Ballarat. 
Now, the Eureka, flag, the Eureka symbol or the flag has become a symbol for many businesses and community organisations, especially in the Ballarat region. Few, if any, do anything on Eureka Day despite them using the flag to promote their personal business interests. The only exception is the Ballarat Trades Hall, the second oldest trades hall in the country, in the world, after the Melbourne Trades Hall. And it is a proud tradition of using and reusing the Eureka flag as their symbol. And it continues to support Eureka celebrations on the 3rd of December. Now, obviously, people clamber on the bandwagon. And one of the strangest bedfellows that has clambered on the bandwagon is the emerging Australian white supremacist movement. Let's have a little bit of a shot of the arm due to the anti-vaccination movement and uh, Mr Guy Matthews. They've attempted to use the Eureka flag as a symbol of white nationalism in Australia. Unfortunately for these lads and lasses, mainly lads, they don't really seem to realise the Eureka Rebellion and its flag was a multicultural revolution which incorporated people of all races, colours and religious persuasions. The Eureka Rebellion was based on the principle. It doesn't matter whose boot is on your neck. What's important is that you get rid of that boot irrespective of who's got that boot on your neck. Of the 13 people tried for high treason in 1855 for their participation in the Eureka Rebellion in 1854, two were black. One was a freed slave from New York, John Joseph, who was acquitted by an all-white jury, although he admitted to shooting the uh, commander of the uh, British forces. Yep. One was a Jew... And only one of those tried for high treason was born in Australia. It was a multicultural revolution. All races, all religions. The latest strange bedfellow to clamber onto the Eureka bandwagon are some elements involved in the current anti-vaccination, anti-mandate struggles. If there is one group of people who would have been aware of the necessity for people observing quarantine rules, it's the Eureka Rebels. Plagued by illnesses that have largely disappeared due to extensive vaccination programs, cholera, diphtheria, measles, polio, smallpox, typhoid and a host of other diseases, let's not forget that over 50% of children on the Victorian goldfields never reached the age of five because of their deaths due to communicable infectious diseases. And let's not forget that most, well, all of them, had, no planes in those days, all that had come across on long sea voyages in which outbreaks of uh, infection occurred commonly. People would die and be chucked into the sea, buried in the sea. And when, when they arrived at Point Net, in Victoria, we had a quarantine station where people were offloaded. So if there was one group that understood infectious diseases and the role of quarantine 
in trying to minimise the damage done by infectious diseases, it would have been the Eureka Revels. I think, it, I think they'd find it very strange, strange, very strange to see these strange bedfellows clamber on the Eureka bandwagon, waving the flag as if it's the flag of those who feel that they have the right to spread infection willy-nilly. You wouldn't tolerate somebody spreading infection normally. The Eureka flag is not just a symbol of opposition. It is much, much more. It is a symbol of hope, unity and rebellion with a purpose. A a purpose that is encapsulated in the Eureka Oath. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. The word we. People of all races, all colours, religious persuasions. To allow segments in Australian society to use the Eureka flag as their symbol a symbol of division, to allow institutions to use the Eureka flag to promote their financial interest without paying their respects to the ideas that underlie the Eureka struggle is a tragedy. In a world where power and wealth has been increasingly concentrated in fewer and fewer hands, in a world where nationalism is once again rearing its ugly head, it is time those people and institutions who remember and understand the principles the Eureka Rebellion is based on and what the Eureka flag stands for to stand up and be counted. And that's why I'm encouraging you to join us for the Reclaim the Radical Spirit of the Eureka Rebellion celebrations which will be held in Ballarat this Friday, the 3rd of December. Now, we've made some major changes to the program because obviously we take COVID-19 seriously We've always been welcomed in Ballarat and we will do our best to ensure that the people of Ballarat are not faced with uh, increasing issues regarding COVID-19. So all events will be held outdoors. There are no events planned indoors. There will be no walking between the event sites. Hopefully we'll be able to transport people between the event sites. Uh, there is no... Uh, Late lunch at the Ballarat uh, Trades Hall in Camp Street and there is no Eureka dinner this year. Hopefully for the 20th anniversary of the Reclaim the Radical Spirit of the Eureka Rebellion celebrations which will be held in Ballarat next year we'll be able to have a full program. But in the interest of public safety we have shaved the program. Now, what is the program? 4am to about 6am corner of Stall Street and Eureka Street in Ballarat, the dawn ceremony. This is a ceremony to mark an important, pivotal moment at the moment it occurred, 160 years, seven years ago, on the very ground it occurred on, which is soaked with the blood of the people who died, upholding those principles that underlie the Eureka struggle, principles which are based on four 
major building blocks. Internationalism. Direct democracy, because they didn't didn't elect representatives to make decisions for them. They discussed things at monster meetings, selected delegates. The delegates went to Melbourne to negotiate with the colonial authorities, and then they would come back to Ballarat to report back to monster meetings. So it was a delegation system. That's direct democracy, direct action. They took up arms to defend what they believed were their rights and liberties and their right to create a new society, free of the class divisions and oppression of the old, and solidarity. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other. Solidarity. Not the solidarity of an individual who wants to strut around spreading infection, but the solidarity of people working together to achieve a common aim to improve the lives of everybody. After that, there'll be a kind of a communal breakfast. Bring your own food and drinks. We don't do catering. Bring your own food and drinks if you want to take part in the breakfast. And then the next major event will be at Bakery Hill at 10am on Friday the 3rd of December. And that's where we retake the Eureka Oath and announce the six winners of the Eureka Australia Medal. Now, these are people who devoted their lives to improving the lives of other people, have made a great sacrifice and have paid a huge price in many cases. And uh, interestingly, this year, we have some of the people we've awarded medals to, you may be familiar with, others you won't. There's Fiona McWhorter, a activist from Rockhampton in Queensland who's fighting the fight of her life against a terminal disease but continues to be active. There's a name that would be well known to most Victorians, Rob Starry, who recently retired. The solicitor who for decades provided pro bono support legal support to activists in this state. There's Cheryl and Klaus, people involved in the deaf in custody struggle. Gary Carton from Ballarat, we always like to um, honour one Ballarat resident. He's been heavily involved in the trade union movement and the West Papuan Freedom Struggle. And this year, we'll be doing a, a direct live cross to West Papua. That's right, a live cross to West Papua in order to um, provide medals to the current West Papuan Prime Minister, and that's in the transitional government, which is a government which has been set up by West Papuans as a direct challenge to the Indonesian occupation and the parliamentary secretary. Two men who've been involved in the struggle for many years, who've been uh, imprisoned, tortured, who continue to be involved in that freedom struggle. A freedom struggle we've had close contact with for almost a decade because, interestingly... There are two star formations you can only see 
in the southern hemisphere, that's the Eureka constellation and the morning star, the symbol of West Papua independence and freedom. After that, we'll be making our way to the old Ballarat Cemetery, not the new cemetery, the old Ballarat Cemetery, uh, at midday to pay our respects to the some of the diggers who are buried, well, all of the diggers that are buried in the mass grave there in the old Ballarat Cemetery. And by about, maybe by about 1.30, we'll be back in Eureka Park for a late lunch. So everything should be finished by about 3, 3.30. So these are the three events. You can come to one, you can come to all, you can come to none. It's up to you. Now, there are many people celebrate Eureka Day in different ways. We are just one group. We attempt to reclaim the radical spirit of the Eureka Rebellion. The Eureka Centre has activities. Other people have activities. The important thing is that Eureka belongs to everyone and no one. But those that celebrate Eureka and use the flag should understand the principles on which the struggle is based on, a continuing struggle which continues 167 years later. We are not part of an alternative universe. We look at the facts, we analyse the facts, we highlight the facts. Come and join us on Friday the 3rd of December. If you can't make it this year, circle the date for next year. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. Also, I'd like to remind you that uh, on Sunday, if you're in Melbourne, Sunday the 5th of December at 1pm at 838 Collins Street in Docklands at the back there, at the back of the building, there'll be the final gathering, no, not for all time, but for 2021, for the West Papuan Rent Collective and West Papuan Independence Supporters. You're all welcome to come along. If you're a West Papuan Rent Collective member, free lunch. If you're not, 15 bucks. Interesting um, speakers, auctions. Uh, Mr. David uh, McKenzie, uh, great um, furniture maker, has uh, made four stools from recycled timber to be auctioned on the day. So if you're wondering what to buy, that person who's got everything for the end of the year, well, come along. Let's move on. Banking indiscretions, are they, is it a moral failure, an ethical failure or a structural failure? Now, I'm sure you're sick and tired, fed up to the neck about hearing about banking indiscretions and I'm sure many listeners to this program have been victims of the bank's avarice. Now, some people say it's a cultural problem. Some people say it's a moral issue. Some say it's an ethical issue. A very few people are willing to shout out the emperor is not wearing any clothes. That's a structural issue. Now, obviously, if you've got a banking system which lubricates the capitalist model, private investment for private profit, the end game of having a privatised bank is to make a buck. It's very simple. And how you make a buck does not really matter, especially when you provide bonuses to employees to make a buck. So what we see is a structural problem, a community-wide problem, 
as a society-wide problem, a worldwide problem, where every aspect of economic activity is dominated through a private investment for private profit looking glass. So if there is environmental damage, human damage, personal damage, it doesn't matter. As long as your major shareholders make a buck at the end of the day. If you need to screw your employees, it doesn't matter. And if you think I'm exaggerating over and over and over again, whether it's the gambling sector, whether it's the banking sector, whether it's the privatised aged care sector, and the list goes on and on and on and on. There are all these indiscretions, lack of services, lack of accountability, lack of regulation. And this is what happens when you give over whole areas of human activity to the private sector and privatise the public sector. When the Commonwealth Bank was in public hands in the in 1990s, before it was privatised by the Labor government and the Liberal national governments, it provided revenue for the Treasury because it made a profit. It was not a, a non-profit organisation. It provided real competition in the marketplace where the private sector had to compete against a government organisation, government-owned organisation. When the Commonwealth Bank was privatised, well, it was hell for leather. Everybody for themselves. The more bucks you make, the more investors you get, the higher share prices. It's not an ethical problem. It's not a moral problem. It's a political structural problem. Well, we allow the private sector to dominate every aspect of human existence in our society in this country, we will continue to see the same result. So, isn't it time that we moved in a different direction? If you are interested in moving in a different direction, and you may not be, you may be happy with the private investment for private profit model because, you know, you may have a little bit of disposable income and you... You know, you kind of got a bit of negative gearing income, a little bit, you know, a few bit of franking credits from your shares, and the list goes on and on. You dream of that retirement you're going to have when you turn 67 or 70, whatever it is these days. But again, we need to look at the long term. And while we continue to support this system, there is no long term. So if you're interested in challenging this directly, I encourage you, implore you, to join public interest before corporate interests. As I said before, we attempted to join as a political party federally, but have failed because the numbers of in- membership numbers have increased from 500 to 1,500 at the stroke of a pen, and that will disendorse at least 40 minor parties and leave the running in the election to, you know, 20 or 30, about 20 major political parties. But we do have a chance of being endorsed as a political party in the Victorian electorate. A good chance. Because the election is not till the end of November next year. And you've just seen the shenanigans and the type of people that supposedly represent Victorians in the Legislative Council over the last few weeks, especially as the debate regarding the current pandemic bill goes on and on and on, you'll begin to realise that these people dominate the crossbenchers, dominate the crossbenchers.
And it's all very well to sit on the sideline and say, tut, tut. But it's about time we had a political registered political party that always put the interests of the public, the many, before the interests of the corporate sector, the few. So I encourage you to join. It's very simple. You can download the application for, from pipsy.net, P-I-B-C-I.net. If you're down at Ballarat on, on the 3rd or at uh, the West Papua do on the 5th, you can approach me privately and I'm happy to give you some application forms. You can always leave a message on 0439 395 489. We need about another 90 members before we can apply for registration as a state-based party. That's not many. Doesn't, I'd like to thank those people that have joined recently, but we need to continue to get members and we need to continue to stand up to ensure that public interests are always put before corporate interests. And it's not good enough to tut-tut or not vote and think, oh, isn't that wonderful? That's all I need to do every three years, you know, tell the bastards, you know, that's how I feel about them. But unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. So come and join us. And now, now we'd like to extend our sympathies to David Davatingu's family. I think most listeners will realise by now that uh, David uh, died in the last few days after a long battle with uh, lung cancer. He was an interesting character, a traditional man brought up in traditional ways. I'm not going to eulogise David Davatingu's life, but I do extend our condolences to his immediate family and his extended clan and tribal family. Obviously, they will go through their own mourning procedures over the next few weeks and months. Their traditional mourning farewells, and we respect that, we respect his contribution, and we extend our sympathies. Barbados. But the only thing you hear about Barbados is, you know, um, you know, holiday destination. Wee! Well, it's interesting to see Charlie's, Queen Lizzie's offspring, still waiting to become king, obviously, poor old Charlie, down at Barbados because they have cut ties with the crown. And now have a president that can be elected by the people with basically ceremonial powers. The same kind of plebiscite that failed in the 1990s in this country. Yep, that's the way it goes. So it's good to see that uh, this is the 17th member of the Commonwealth that has now cut their ties with Queen Lizzie. Good to see. Now, whether this will happen in my life in Australia, I doubt it. But you never know. And obviously, as you see, it's very interesting. I mean, one of the reasons we, we established the Eureka Australia Medal in 2005 to honour people who'd been activists was for a very good reason. One, you never saw their names in the, in the uh, Invasion Day's honours list on the 26th of January or Queen Lizzie's birthday list. Isn't it interesting? The two days that Australian honours are given to people are on the Invasion Day the day the disposition began and Queen Lizzie's birthday. Extraordinary, isn't it? What does it say about us as a people? Now let's move on. 
Dutton the warmonger. Yep. I keep telling you, there's votes in the yellow peril. There's votes in beating the war drums. Well, I assume Mr Dutton, our, you know, our defence minister, he Australia's defence minister, will be leading the charge against the missiles. I assume he will be leading the charge. He's done the rhetoric. Reminds me of the good old days when the uh, Liberal National Party introduced uh, conscription to uh, ensure there are enough Australian men to be sacrificed on the killing fields in Vietnam. It was fascinating, wasn't it? Mr Fraser, who was the Defence Minister at that time, basically got away with it. Scott Three, the rest of his life was, uh, you know, you know, honours after honour after honour. But, but, Mr Dutton, I don't think you will be suffering the same fate. I mean, isn't it extraordinary? A Defence Minister who rattles the sabre against a superpower, hoping the other superpower will jump in bed with us and protect us. And over the last few months, every little media release, every little uttering from Mr Dutton and his cohorts has been against about increased cooperation, about joining the USA in protecting the independence of Taiwan, about the yellow peril, reminds me of the good old days when you had the picture of Asia, this was an election poster, and you had a yellow arrow running to Australia saying, the yellow peril. Look, it's worked before. It's worked for a long time in this country, the concept of having to worry about the yellow peril. But I think maybe people are a little bit more sophisticated Maybe they don't want to sacrifice their sons and daughters on the, on the uh, killing fields to uh, satisfy Mr Dutton's, um, you know, war. But it may be successful. I have noticed this this um, great hatred in the community and obviously they've done their uh, polling. If they can swing a few thousand votes or a few hundred thousand votes in their direction because of people's fear of the yellow peril... Why not? If it means rattling the sabre, why not? But the trouble is when you rap, rap, rattle the sabre too often, you may inadvertently find yourself in a situation you never wanted to find yourself in in the first place. So let's move on. I don't want to waste too much time on Mr Dutton. Now, the Solomon Islands unrest. You like this one? Now, now Mr Sogavara the current Prime Minister has blamed outside interference. Now, I'm going to give you the background of this because we've now got Australian troops and Australian police trying to maintain order, in inverted commas, in uh, Solomon Islands. And let's not forget we were there at least about 20, 20 years ago in the same similar situation happened, but for different reasons. Now, the Solomon Islands is made up of about 80 islands and the two main islands are Malaita, which is the most populous islands, and Guadalcanal, on which the, the capital, Honiara, is located. Now, the Solomon Islands made a very, very important decision in 2019. It decided not to recognise Taiwan. Very important decision. Now, Taiwan had many investments in the Solomon Islands, and that's how they maintain their votes in the United Nations. You get a lot of the little countries, doesn't matter how little they are, it's still one vote. 
But the Prime Minister, in 2019, switched sides. Now, when you look at this, you think, oh, this is some type of spontaneous revolution against the current government for corruption, no jobs, increasing poverty, increasing dislocation, all makes good. But you may not have noticed who was behind stoking the fire. It's one thing starting a fire. It's another thing stoking the fire and creating a wildfire, which you ended up in these riots, which saw the deaths of many people, loss of employment of many people. Now, you may find this a bit unusual, but I don't because this is the way it works. The United States of America has been pumping millions of dollars directly into the island of Malaita. It's providing donations to the island of Malaita, stoking resentment against the central government in Honiara, which was elected by the people of the Solomon Islands in free and fair elections, in order to create this chaos which is currently enveloping the islands, which only suits Taiwan and the current United States government. I'll give you an example. Let's say... Let's say the people of Victoria, right? Let's say that we had a little dispute with the central government and the Russians started pouring millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in Victoria to bolster opposition groups in Victoria to the central government. How would we feel about it? Because hmm? let's not forget that most of the people who turned up for the... Uh, rioting on Guadalcanal actually came from Malaita and it's the people of the Guadalcanal who are now bearing the cost. I mean, this is a classic tactic which is, has been used by the United States for decades to destabilise governments. All we've got to think about is the dismissal in 1975 on the 11th of November 1975 to understand where this struggle is coming from. So keep your eye on the Solomon Islands, keep your eye on the destabilisation, and let's see what happens. But the important thing to remember is that we now have a dog in the fight because we are now in the Solomon Islands as so-called peacekeepers. That's this country, Mr Dutton. Now, Omnicron, I know you've all been waiting about Omnicron. Now, I'm going to tell you to look on the bright side. Look on the bright side. There's some very good news regarding the new variant, Omicron, but I'd like to give a bit of background. Viruses mutate. All viruses mutate. Like human beings, they want to survive. They mutate. So what can we look forward to regarding the Omicron variant? One, we learn the Greek alphabet. Oh, I'm only joking. <laughs> Two, 
we've began to understand what the word pandemic means. Pandemic means around the world. Around the world. And if you don't want new variants to appear, the world needs to be vaccinated. I'll give you an example. Currently I'm hosting a program with the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria on Thursday. I mean, we're, up, we're going to do Series 10 tomorrow, but we have to cancel it because our correspondent in that region has now developed COVID-19 symptoms, quite major symptoms, and he may not survive. He's very sick. And the reason is they have no vaccination a disease is causing strife among those five million people. And they don't have vaccinations because they're not, they're not a sovereign nation state and the United Nations does not have the capacity to provide those vaccinations. So if the world doesn't get vaccinated because of rapid air travel, a variant which may develop in South Africa today could be here tomorrow. Now, this variant, we're not sure how infectious it is and how virulent it is. Infectious means how contagious it is. Virulent means how nasty it is. That's simple, right? Now, if the Omicron variant turns out to be much more infectious or contagious than the Delta variant, it will soon take over the world. The dilemma is... Is it a less severe strain of COVID-19? If it is, it's doing the world a favour. Or does it have more long-term consequences? Think about it. Because, see, it's not just about vaccination and social distancing and mask wearing. It's also about treatment. And it's also about preventing variants or mutations which can be much more virulent. Instead of having a mortality rate of 1% to 2%, they could have a mortality rate of 30 or 40%. And let's not forget that SARS had a mortality rate of 30%. So let's wait and see. It's not a time to panic, it's just a time to wait and see. We'll find out all about Omicron in the next few weeks. Parliament House Canberra, misogynist central. Well... I'm sure nobody was surprised by the reports that came out of Parliament House. And I'm going to say something today. I think to a significant degree, the culture that's developed over Parliament House has intensified over the last decade or two. And the negative aspects have intensified in many ways. And the, and the significant reason for that is the fact that the political representatives which have been elected in a majority of cases in the Liberal National Party are basically IPA, Institute of Private you know, Affairs. I don't call them public affairs. They've got nothing to do with the public. Institute of Private Affairs. Clones. People who think that Freedom is about having the freedom to exploit other people's labour, not to have a basic wage. The freedom to say what you like, irrespective of the harm that you do to people. The freedom to strut around spread, spreading infection. And that 
cultural void that now inhabits Parliament House because the Liberal National Party has lost its way. A party that Menzies disowned on his deathbed, disowned because it's been taken over by the ideologues and we're now reaping the benefits, not just the economic benefits in inverted commas, but the cultural benefits of having liars, self-centred people who've got no respect for the people who elect them or the public now currently pulling the levers of power. And just in case you think it's all over, well, it's not. There's a federal election in May, most likely, and the good thing is we're going to have a budget and we're going to have election goodies. Election goodies are going to be flowing out of the basket. Maybe we'll get more car parks at railway stations. Maybe we'll get more sporting centres. I don't know what they're going to do this time. But don't get confused by the election goodies. Come on, boys and girls. You know you know what happens when you eat too much chocolate when you go to Granny's place. You feel sick the next day. So if we do get blindsided, courtesy of the... Uh, Mur- Murdoch-owned media. If we get blindsided by the election goodies, it'll flow out of the uh, package during the next um, budget, just before maybe you hold the budget and you call the federal election two days later. Well, you've been listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. Don't forget, Eureka Day, 3rd of December, 4am, 10am, midday. Go to the webpage, anarchistmedia.org, Public interest before corporate interests. Go to my Facebook page, Joseph Toscana, Toscana for the Public. Let's, not, let's remember, this is a sacred day, an important day. It's a day where we need to show respect to whoever it turns up. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscano. I've been hosting this program, which is heard across Australia, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Telephone numbers, if you want to join public interest before corporate interest, 0439 395 489. Nobody will answer the phone. Please leave a message and we'll get back to you. You can write to us at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 30052. YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. And the list goes on and on and on. Ultimately, change comes when you have a public that participates in that process. No participation, no change. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist Will this week. Courtesy of the Community Radio Network on your local community radio station. Listen in to the Anarchist World this week, next week, via the Community Radio Network. Thank you once again for uh, sparing the time to uh, listen to our pearls of wisdom. An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse, 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger.
been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.